this morning. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you want to open your Bibles there. Rob told me I've got an hour and a half, so is that cool? We're going to be here for... So, amen. I hear you guys are students of the Word, so I won't keep you that long. Maybe an hour and ten minutes. How's that? 1 Samuel chapter 15. As you guys are making your way there, I wonder, uh, pop quiz time, anybody know a guy by the name of Tim Treadwell? Anybody ever hear that name? Tim Treadwell is an interesting character. He, he, was, um, he was a bear fanatic, crazy about grizzly bears. Yeah, so much so he spent 13, 13 consecutive years in the Katmai National Park. Uh, he would set his camp up right in the middle of the grizzly trails, and he would interact with the bears. He, he, he thought that he had this, this personal connection. He was some weird dude from Malibu, uh, and he thought he was just connected spiritually with the grizzly bears. And, uh, and so he would go out, he'd set up his camp, he would, he would physically interact with grizzly bears in the wild, uh, and uh, he would interact with their cubs, he would actually touch the bears, pet the bears, and people thought he was absolutely crazy, probably was uh, crazy, um, you notice I'm talking about him in the past tense, but uh, at any rate, uh, the, he was warned repeatedly Look, what you're doing is foolish. You, you are playing with wild animals, and one of these days, they, they're going to they're gonna kill you and eat you. And his response to that was to say, you know, uh, I would consider it an honor to be eaten by a bear and become bear poop. It's called scat. He said, I would proudly, honorably become bear scat. And one of the, the rangers who heard him talking about this, and he was constantly battling with the rangers, and they're just trying to save the guy's life, you know? And so they, they even established rules that exist now today in the national parks where you can't set your tent up for a consecutive period of time. They'll only let you stay in one place for 24 hours, and then you have to move, uh, you know, a considerable distance, at least, you know, an hour's distance from where you were. Um, and they did this all because of, of this man. And so one of the rangers hears Tim Treadwell say, oh, I would proudly become bear scat. And he says, I consider it certainly only a matter of time before he is so honored. And certainly uh, he was on October 5th, 2003, sadly a grizzly bear ate Tim Treadwell and tragically his girlfriend Amy with him. And the reason they know when it happened and how it happened was because when the plane came to pick him up, they saw the, the, the campsite there and it was utterly decimated, totally destroyed. Uh, they found, uh, you know, just a few scarce of human remains, both of, of him and of his girlfriend, and they found his video recorder, which had been recording at the time of the attack and throughout the attack. And somewhere in the attack, obviously, it, it had fallen down, and so there was no video image, that, but there was the audio image. And you could hear that the bear first attacked him and his girlfriend screaming and hysterical. Who She was afraid of bears. I don't know why she would accompany him. But she went out with a frying pan and tried to beat the, the bear off of him. And then after the bear finished with him, he turned and he ate her. And, and the, the audio portion of the tape, um, it, just a few people have heard it, but they say it's it's as terrible as you might imagine. The, the moral of the story is you can't play with wild animals without becoming part of the menu. That's the moral of the story. And I tell you that by way of introduction to, to our text here in 1 Samuel 15, because the underlying message of 1 Samuel chapter 15 is that you can't play around with sin, or pretty soon it's going to eat you up. 
So, so the, the title of our, our message today is Kill or Be Killed, uh, and uh, we're going to take a look at uh, God's uh, warning uh, to, uh, to Saul uh, through the prophet Samuel, and uh, we're going to hear uh, his warning to us. Let's start in First uh, Samuel 15, uh, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. And, and you know, if you've read through the book of 1 Samuel, what you pick up through Samuel's words here is that he's a little frustrated with Saul because Saul doesn't listen so well. Saul doesn't obey. Saul is a guy that, that kind of, you know, does what Saul wants to do, and, and he's a constant disappointment. And so, you know, you pick up and you, you just, you hear Samuel's words here when he, when he starts by saying, hey, listen, man, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. This was the Lord's doing. So now I'm going to tell you something the Lord's saying, and you better do it. But you get the sense that Samuel, as he's even speaking these words, isn't holding his breath that Saul is going to obey. Samuel, if he was a betting man, he would not be betting on Saul. And so uh, he says, hey, man, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. For crying out loud, Saul, would you for once in your life heed the voice of the words of the Lord? Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Tulane, about, or rather 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go... Depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul, verse 9, and the people... Spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good, and they were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now, can I just tell you that, frankly, it's stories like this that, that cause the unbelievers, you know, the people that, that, that disdain God, this is what causes people to mock God when they hear stories like this. They, 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 they hear a story of, you know, God saying, I want you to go destroy these people. Men, women, children, nursing infants, I want you to destroy them all. And people, unbelievers will hear a story like this and they'll say, hey, you know, there's your God of love right there. And they will, they will use stories like this as an occasion to mock God. And it seems extreme, and it, in fact, it prompts a question which is going to serve as the basis for our study of these nine verses this morning. Here's the question. Why would a loving God call for the total destruction of the Amalekites? That question is going to serve as the basis for our study here this morning. We're going to look at uh, four things that I've drawn out of the text, four answers to that question. Why would a loving God call 
for the destruction of the Amalekites. Now, as we go through these, these, the answering this question, what, what I would encourage you to do is to prayerfully consider your own life, because what we're going to see here is that as we answer this question, not only is it specific to uh, answering the question situationally, what happened in the life of Saul with his command to d- attack the Amalekites thousands of years ago, but it also has a very distinct bearing on our lives today. And so the first answer to that question, why would a loving God call for the destruction of the Amalekites? Simply this, to punish the guilty. To punish the guilty. See, God had an ancient quarrel with the Amalekites. Uh, If you read through the book of Exodus, what you see is that the Amalekites were the ones that attacked the Jews as they came out of Egypt. Um, and they were unusually cruel, and they were vicious, and their tactic was that they would go after the tired uh, and the weak, the stragglers, at the back of the group. Uh, and so here they would attack the tired and the weak and so on. And at the time, God helped Israel. Uh, he heard Moses' prayer, and he helped Joshua's army. You've heard the story where as long as Moses' hands were, were held up, they were victorious in battle. That was in their battle with the Amalekites. And so, so God heard them. He answered their prayers. He helped them uh, in their battle against the Amalekites. Uh, but from that moment on, God declared that there would be perpetual war against the Amalekites. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 25. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget, the Lord says. Now, again, somebody hears that and they're like, hey, what happened to all this talk about God being a God of grace and God being a God of mercy? What's, what, what's up with your, your merciful, loving God? Well, my first answer to this would be, look, this command that God gives to Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, this is hundreds of years after God had, had said uh, these words in the book of Deuteronomy. This is, this is hundreds of years after they did their dastardly deeds, their attacks against the, the, the people of the nation of Israel. This is hundreds of years that has transpired. And what I need you to understand is that that hundreds of years, it translates to a God of mercy who would give these people hundreds of years to repent. And, and so this, this is, this, there has been a long time of God getting to this point, really giving them a considerable amount of time to, in fact, uh, repent. Uh, my second answer is, is, is kind of derivative of that, and it's in, in fact, it's a lot longer. Turn to a Jonah chapter 3, if you will. Jonah chapter 3. If you want to find it, uh, it's quickest, probably go to Matthew, Matthew's gospel and hang a left, go back a few books. So Jonah chapter three, basically um, what we see here is uh, that, that uh, God's dealing with Jonah and he's dealing uh, with the Ninevites and, and I'll just read it beginning in verse one. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and preach to it the message that I uh, tell you. Now, he says the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and, and you know, I'm sure 
all of us here familiar with the story of Jonah. Uh, but basically, you know, the idea, if I can refresh your memory, is God came to Jonah and he says, look, I got a message for the Ninevites. I want you to go, I want you to go to preach to them. Now, the Ninevites were hated by the Jews. They were, they were wicked people. They're located in modern Iraq and they were notorious for their brutality. Uh, and uh, Jonah didn't want to go uh, to Nineveh. Uh, for, for at least a couple of reasons. I mean, one, and you can put it yourself in his shoes. I mean, God shows up to you today and he says, hey, I want you to go to Iraq and I want you to preach in Iraq. You're like, not me, man. Not without some Kevlar and, you know, some, a weapon. And uh, I don't want to go, uh, to that place. It's a, it's, it's an unpleasant place. Uh, they, they don't treat, uh, Christians very well there, Lord. I really don't want to go. Well, you know, there, there was a fear factor, no doubt, but there was also just a hatred factor. And we find this as you study through the book of Jonah, that God told Jonah, hey, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. And he was afraid, I'm going to go preach to the Ninevites. They're going to repent. You're going to forgive them because you're forgiving God. And I don't want you to forgive them. I want them to go to hell. I don't like those people. And so he didn't want to go. So he, he jumps on a ship going in the opposite direction. And, uh, you know, God has a way of getting us where he wants us to be. And Jonah gets tossed into the, to the ocean when they get into the foul weather. Everybody's like, well, what's going on? Who's, 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 God upset with here, and Jonah's like, it's me, throw me in the ocean, you know, and uh, he gets swallowed by a great fish, we don't know, you know, whale, a fish, whatever it says, the Bible says, calls it a great fish, I, think, I say whale, uh, just because, you know, my Sunday school days are ingrained in my head, but at any rate, God, you know, has him swallowed by this great fish, barfed up there on the shores of Nineveh, and, uh, and here he is, you know, still with the whale puke dripping off him, and God shows up here in chapter 3 and speaks to him a second time. You got that out of your system, Jonah? You ready to do what I asked you to do? Because because it's time for you to get busy with, with the work I want to do. So, so Jonah arose, verse 3, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. So it takes you three days to walk from one side of the city to another. So a huge city. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and then he cried out, and he said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? What you read there are some wonderful words of true repentance. Just fantastic words of true repentance. All kinds of stuff we could draw out of that and how it's never too late to give up on anybody and so on. But it says, verse 10, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. In other words, the fruit of their repentance. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Now, what I want you to see is that God's heart is to save. That's the heart of God. And so we read a story where God tells uh, the, you know, Saul that I want you to go utterly destroy the Amalekites. Listen, God doesn't get there lightly. This is on the heels of hundreds of years of mercy and opportunity and grace extended to them. And it's the heart of God not to destroy. 
And, and what we're going to find out, you know, and, and what you will uh, discover in your study of the Bible is that when God, you know, told Jonah that he's to go to Nineveh, preach to the Ninevites, and they have such a massive repentance, their repentance is true. It's genuine, and it lasts for about 100 years. And in about 100 years or so, God will ultimately destroy the Ninevites. He will judge them. But think of the, the, the generations that were saved, that responded to God's invitation of grace, his extension of mercy. And, and, and again, just the heart of God being fulfilled there. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. This is the heart of our God. You know, there's this interesting exchange that's recorded in Genesis 18. You don't have to turn there, but, you know, God and Abraham are talking. And basically what happens, God's preparing to pour out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. They're wicked. He's going to judge them. He's it up to here with them. And God thinks to himself, you know, I, I, I'm going to bring Abraham in on what I'm about to do. So, hey, bro, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to, I'm going to smoke, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. He's so disturbed by that. He's like, you're going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? God's like, no. He's like, you know, if there's 50 righteous people, are you, are you going to destroy them along with the wicked? God's like, no, I, w- I won't. If there's 50 righteous people, I will hold back. I won't destroy. And so Abraham's like, well, what about 40? No, I won't do it for 40. Well, what about 30? What about 20? What about 10, God? There's 10 righteous people. Are you going to destroy them if there's 10 righteous people? And God's like, no, I, you know, I'm not going to do that. And, and, and what we see here is that Abraham, he struggled with the same thing that many of us struggle with. When we hear this story, when, when we hear God say, hey, I want you, Saul, to go stro- destroy the Amalekites, Abraham struggled with the same thing. He's like, well, wait a minute. What if, you know, what if there's some, some, some righteous people there? And, you know, again, people might read this story in 1 Samuel 15, and they might go, wait a minute, God's saying he wants these people utterly destroyed, including children. And what if, gosh, what if there's, what if there's some, some, some righteous people there? And, and, and you know, again, the, how can God pour out his wrath in the entire population? Well, again, the question when you ask that, it has at its, as its core that maybe there's some innocent there. And we know just from the heart and the nature of God, just from the, the, the verses that we've read uh, in, in the book of Jonah, you know, just the, the testament of this exchange between God and Abraham, the heart of God isn't to destroy the righteous. And if there were righteous, he would not be, wouldn't be destroying them. And so, so, listen, God is punishing the guilty. He wants them utterly destroyed, and they are all guilty. And you, you might say to that, oh, wait a minute, because he's destroying children. He's destroying infants here. How do you answer that question? Well, that brings up the second reason why a loving God would call for the total destruction of the Amalekites, not only to punish the guilty, but secondly, to preserve the innocent. To preserve the innocent. As you continue reading through 1 Samuel and get into 2 Samuel, there's an interesting thing that happens there, and what you see is that the guy that's going to replace Saul, the man after God's own heart, David, uh, he, uh, he falls into sin. Uh, he's up on the roof when he should be in battle. Springtime when the kings should be in war, should be in battle. Saul, or David's on the roof taking a walk. He sees his next door neighbor's wife. She's taking a bath, names conveniently Bathsheba. And, uh, and there she is, Sheba in a bath, just there. And, and he's like, who is she? 
And, and you know, his guys try to tell him, look, man, she is not for you. She's a married woman. In fact, one of your guys that's fighting for you right now on the battle lines, which, where, by the way, you ought to be there, kind of is the implication. But no, you're here taking a little vacation, and you're looking at this guy's wife. And, and David doesn't pick up on any of the, the cues that the guys are saying. He's like, bring her to me. And he falls into sin, and, and a child is conceived, and uh, he has uh, Uriah, uh, her husband, killed in battle, uh, try to cover it up kind of deal. And anyway, basically, God has to judge sin because he's holy, he's righteous, he's pure. And in the process of judging sin, what transpires is that the child, well, the child dies. And what we, what we see there as this, this child dies and, and, and as this thing happens, Second Samuel chapter 12, is, is that when his son died, the text makes it clear that the baby went to heaven. And, and what happens there is that God, well, he judged sin, but he preserved the innocent. And the same principle applies here, that in taking the children now in the economy of God, hey, they lose their temporary early earthly life, but in the process, they gain eternal life. Again, I want you to think of it. What has happened generation after generation after generation with these Amalekites? God has extended to them his love, his mercy, his forgiveness over and over and over again for hundreds of years. And what happens is for hundreds of years you have nursing infants that grow to be children, that grow to be adults, that wind up going to hell because they have completely rejected the Lord. And so at the point where God has said, look, enough is enough, and I've given you hundreds of years to repent, and now what I'm going to do is I'm going to judge your sin, but at the same time, what I'm going to do is preserve the innocent because those nursing children, those, those nursing infants, those children, they, they are innocent, they're pure, they are even in the midst of God's judgment, he's going to preserve them. He's going to preserve the innocent. And we know just from the account in 2 Samuel 12 that, that they will go to heaven. They will not grow up to forsake the Lord and to reject the Lord. They lose the temporary earthly life, but they gain eternal life. Jesus asked the question, what, what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so in the economy of God, this is, this is a, a, a merciful God preserving the innocent. Well, the third reason why a loving God would call for the total destruction of the Amalekites and this is important. First reason, to punish the guilty. Second, to preserve the innocent. But thirdly, to paint a picture of the flesh. And this is where it becomes intensely personal for you and me. As we consider God's command to, to Saul and its implications for you and me. God is painting a picture of the flesh. You see, what you need to know about the Amalekites is that they were descendants of Esau. And if, if you know your Bible history, basically Esau is the one who sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup, right? The, the story goes that, that Jacob is there at home and, and he's making, you know, this, this pot of soup and, uh, and his brother's a hunter and he's out, Esau's out in the field and Esau comes home and he opens the door and it is just heaven meets his nose kind of thing. You know, my Sundays, my, my wife oftentimes will put a, she'll put a roast in the, in the crock pot before we go to church. And you walk home and you open the door and it's like the angels are singing, you know. 
It's like Thanksgiving, you know, you get the, the turkey in the oven and you just all, you're, you're starving. That, that thing just smells so good. So this is what Esau comes home to. He's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Give me some. Jacob's like, no, not so fast, bro. What's it worth to you? He's like, well, what do you want? I want your birthright. That's what I want. Give me your birthright. And, and Esau's response is, he's like, what do I care? I'm going to die. And he's not really going to die. But, but he's basically, look, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, a couple of things there. I'm dying of hunger right now. Let's have it. But also, another kind of idea here is that he's like, look, I'm eventually going to die. What do I care about my birthright? And, and what happens is, when Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of soup, it revealed two things about him. First of all, how little he valued his inheritance. And the second thing it revealed about Esau was how much he was controlled by his appetites. <clears throat> how little he valued his inheritance and how much he was controlled by his appetites. So what I want you to see here is that the Amalekites, they serve as a picture of the fallen sin nature in the heart of man. That's what the Amalekites serve as. They're a picture of your fallen sin nature and of my fallen sin, sin nature. They, they, they serve as that picture of our, our sinful flesh that mindlessly trades away the things of eternal value in order to satisfy our temporary lusts. Jesus asked the question again, Mark eight thirty seven: what's a man going to give in exchange for his soul? And as it turns out, well, people will sell their souls for next to nothing. I mean, watch the news for crying out loud. You will see people selling their souls right and left. Just, just don't watch your, just keep your eyes open in life. I, there, were, there was a story, you know, several years ago. It was 2009, January 2009. There was a girl made the news. She auctioned off her virginity for, for, for a few thousand dollars. And, and there have been, you know, several over the years that have supposedly done that. What they found is most of them are publicity stunts. But this girl, you know, by all accounts, she actually did it. Some Southern California girl auctioned it off. And it's like, I mean, you sell your soul for, for, for money. In May 2012, there was a Florida mom who was arrested after arranging for her six-year-old daughter to have sex with two men for drugs. I mean, I, you hear stories like that. I get homicidal. I don't know about you. I mean, I hear a story like that. I'm like, somebody needs to die, you know? And, and it's just horrible, this kind of stuff. People sell their souls left and, left and right. Now, we're rightfully shocked and appalled by stories like that. We're like, they kind of, you know, for, thank, thankfully for the majority of people, that's not the world that we live in. But, man, still, you and I, in our sinful flesh, we can be remarkably like Esau. And we can have little regard and value for our inheritance and we can be controlled by our appetites. Donald Barnhouse said this, he said, history shows that men prefer illusions to realities, choose time rather than eternity and the pleasures of sin for a season rather than the joys of God forever. Men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls, and multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. Men still sell their birthright for a mess of pottage. Here's my question for you, just, just a takeaway for you. You could jot it down. What do you sell out for? What appetites tempt you to compromise? 
Is it the temptation of internet pornography? Is it the temptation to pursue some sort of an inappropriate relationship? I'll tell you, I see that a lot. I see people at Facebook, you know, people on Facebook, and there's nothing wrong with being on Facebook, cool, but I see people that get on Facebook and they're like, oh, you know what? I wonder what my girlfriend from high school is doing. Stop wondering. Stop it. Because, like, you know, there, there's a little bit more to that curiosity. than. And I see people over and over again. They're like, oh, I just, I just want to see what she's up to. No, you don't. No, you don't. But, but what happens is people that, that they have, the, in the sinful nature, we can have these fleshly appetites. And we just disregard the, the, the eternal thing. Disregard our birthright. You, you, you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You have, you, have, you have a future in heaven in eternity with, with, with God the Father. And people will disregard the fact that, listen, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and I need to live for my Lord and Savior who, who, gave, who died for me. And yet we can get to the place where we just, we don't value, we don't value our birthright. We don't value our inheritance. All of a sudden we're controlled by our appetites. Listen, God says to Saul and he says to us, kill it kill it, destroy it. I need you to let that thing go. And Saul and the people go, no. We want to keep some of it. What is it you're trying to keep? Alexander McLaren said this. He said, partial obedience is complete disobedience. See, here's the idea. People don't typically wake up and go, oh, hey, you know what? Today's the day. I'm going to sell my kid. Get some drugs. People, they, don't, they just don't get there overnight. It's not like you know, you're living some sort of righteous life and then all of a sudden overnight, it's like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sell my, my virginity. It's, it does, it's a slow, steady decline that happens. It's this erosion that has happened. It's this compromise. See, what happens is, like Saul, we have these pet sins that we want to keep around. And it's like, well, I'll get rid of this and I'll get rid of that and, and I'll get rid of this thing over here. But I want, to keep, I want to keep the good stuff. And what God says is, it's not good, man. It is not good. I've told you to utterly destroy that, and you've got this thing, this pet thing that you want to keep in your life, and you want to tuck that thing away, and I'll get rid of this, and I'll get rid of that. But I'm not ready to get rid of this thing right here. And can I tell you, this morning, that's the thing that God has spoken on your heart, and I don't even have to argue or talk you into it. You know. Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now, saying, you know exactly what that little good thing is in your life that you've tried to hold on to. And I just make it very clear that I'm saying good in air quotes because God says it's bad. But they're unwilling to utterly destroy it. They want to keep that grizzly bear around. You know, Tim Treadwell, he had little nicknames for the bears. At one, he called Mr. Chocolate. And another, he, he, he called, you know, Mr. Bobo, you know, and he had all these cutesy little names until one day Mr. Chocolate ate him. And, and, and that's, that's the thing that we have to understand. And this is exactly what Saul does. I mean, look there again at verse 9. It says, but Saul and the people spared Agag, and they kept the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and they were unwilling to, to utterly destroy them. But everything utterly, everything despised and worthless, that they utterly uh, destroyed. 
<laughs> Crazy. You know, in Romans 8, 13, Paul said this. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the, the deeds of the body, you'll live. Again, writing to the Colossians, Paul said this. He said, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. See, we got to put these things to death. Whenever, whenever I have the, account, the, the opportunity to counsel somebody who's given their lives to Christ, maybe they respond to an altar call or, or to, you know, to an invitation that's given. And, and what I like to do when I talk to people, I like to tell them, listen, you've come forward, but now you need to go forward. See, because following Christ, it, it's, it's more than just a profession and a prayer. It needs to change your life. It needs to, to make its way from, from your head to your heart to your hands and your feet. It needs to affect the way that you're going to live out your life. And so what happens is that, you know, you're born again, and now all of a sudden you, you, you have these new behaviors and these new habits, and then you need to die to the old man. You need to put the old man to death. It's been said that a faith that doesn't change you doesn't save you. And, and, and we, a great example in Luke's gospel, you guys all know the story of Zacchaeus, and, and basically you see in Zacchaeus a man, you know, climbs up the tree, he's so desperate to get to Jesus, here's a guy who got everything he ever wanted financially and found out that it just doesn't satisfy. And most of us, we, you know, we get to live the, the delusional uh, lie that is, well, if, you know, if I had a little bit more money or if I had, you know, this car or if I had this house, you know, that, that, I, that I'd be happy. But a few people actually get the opportunity to get everything and then they realize it just doesn't satisfy. I always love the quote that I heard from Harrison Ford years ago. He, he said, you always want what you ain't got. And they're like, Harrison Ford, actor, millionaire, movie star, what ain't you got? Peace. Why didn't he have any peace? Well, because he, he came to the realization, actor, millionaire, movie star, fame, fortune, doesn't satisfy at the end of the day. Zacchaeus got to that place. He's desperate, you know, and he seeks out the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, there you are, Zacchaeus. I'm going to dine at your house today. Let's get together, man. And you see what happens in Zacchaeus' life. Radical transformation. And here being radically transformed, radically brought into a relationship with the Lord, now what happens in Zacchaeus' life, he stood and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give up to half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. What you see in his life is he was changed, and because he was changed, his behavior changed. Well, the fourth and final reason that I've drawn out of the text why a loving God would call for the total destruction of the Amalekites. Not only, number one, to punish the guilty. Not only, number two, to preserve the innocent. Not only, thirdly, to paint a picture of the flesh. But fourthly and finally this morning, to protect the Israelites. To protect the Israelites. We, we see there in, in verse 8, again, it tells us there that the people in, in verse 9, they, they spared Agag. They, ke they kept King Agag alive. And it says, you know, they would keep, you know, the other things that they considered good as well alive. So there were other Amalekites that they kept alive as well. Why did he keep Agag alive? Well, you know, it was the custom to parade around the, the army that you defeated to bring them back to your, your town and parade them around in defeat. And so, so there, you know, Saul bringing Agag back alive, it was a trophy for him. 
It was accolades and it was affirmation and it was, you know, all of the things that, that would <clears throat> build up his flesh. He kept Agag alive. I want to keep, this is a trophy for me, man. And I bring this guy back and I march him around the streets and everybody's going to see me as having defeated him. And, and by humiliating him, I'm going to look that much better. And God's like, it ain't about any of that, man. But he wants it. He, this is his flesh crying out, and he keeps you know, this, this guy alive as a trophy. And the best of the animal and all that was good. And what we're going to see is that Samuel's going to show up, and he's like, what are you doing? And Saul's going, oh, I utterly destroyed everything. And Samuel's like, you know, and what, what's the sheep? This bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears. And, you know, the liar. You're a liar, Saul, you know. He's like, what on earth is, you know, I got all that. And, and, and it says, and this is, what I, this is what stands out to me. Everything the people spared, Agag, verse 9, the best of the sheep and the auction, the fatlings, the lambs, etc., etc. And it says, and all that was, all that was good. All that was good. That's Saul's problem right there. He calls something good that God called bad. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess is an interesting word. Do you know what it means? It means to agree with God. That's what it means. So, so the idea is to call sin what God calls sin. You know, we don't, we don't give it some little cutesy name. We don't, we don't give it some sort of tie. Oh, you know, I'm just predisposed to have a struggle, you know, physiologically speaking with alcohol. I'm just sensitive to it. I've got a gene that causes me to, you know, no, you're drunk and it's sin. So we want to make excuses for it. We want to give little names. And let me just say, I'll just throw this out. I don't want to offend anybody. In my family, there is a long, long history of alcohol abuse in my family. My, my grandfather, character and a half, man, married 10 times. Salvation Army pulled him literally, physically, out of the gutter. Just a drunk in the gutter. My, my other grandfather, World War II fighter pilot, commercial airline pilot, Binge drinker when he wasn't flying, man. And, and so I've seen a lot of damage and destruction in alcohol. So I, I don't want to defend any, or offend anybody. I understand the struggles of, of alcohol. But I will simply tell you this. We can't, we can't give little pet names to our sin. We can't like make excuses for it with some sort of medical name or some sort of an excuse. We just have to call sin what God calls sin. And it's not good. God says it's bad. You got to destroy it. You got to get it out. We have, to, we, have to, we have to agree with God. We, 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 have to, we have to make sure that we're not, we're not keeping those pet sins around. And, and here's what we're going to see. We're going to see, listen, God wants to protect the Israelites. And what, what you will see as you continue reading just through the Word of God, and you will see in, in Saul's life that he's going to be killed on Mount Gilboa by an Amalekite. You know, as you study through the Bible, you get to the book of Esther. You read through the book of Esther. Who's the bad man in, in, in Esther? The big bad guy? Haman? An Amalekite. Here's my point. When God tells us to destroy something, 
He knows what he's talking about. And we go, wait a minute, this is good. This is Mr. Chocolate, man. That's like, Mr. Chocolate's going to have you for lunch. And you got to trust me when I tell you to utterly destroy it. John Owen said this, kill sin or sin will be killing you. Kill or be killed, that's the idea. I want to close with three questions, and it's fitting, you know, here we are, the last sermon of the year, and I would ask you to write these questions down and really take a walk with them, because hopefully, you know, people mock New Year's resolutions. I think it's good to, to come to the end of the year, to reflect on the year you've had, and to start planning for the year ahead. And so, so I would encourage you, as your pastor is going to be sharing a, a New Year's message coming up this next Sunday, talking about the vision here for the church, why don't, you, why don't you prayerfully consider these questions as you consider, Lord, what's your, what's your vision for me in 2015? So here we go. Number one, what is God asking you to attack and destroy? What Mr. Chocolates do you have in your life? What, what, what is it that God's asking you to attack and destroy? Number two, Are you calling something good that God has called bad? Are you calling something good that God has called bad? Thirdly, finally, is there anything that you're unwilling to destroy? See, because God's going to go after the idols in our lives. And that thing he asks you to destroy a lot of times is that thing that that you're worshiping, that you're building up, that you're sacrificing for. And you want to keep that thing around. You want to keep that thing protected. So God tells you to destroy it. You want to fight against it. Hey, that's normal. But it's good to understand when you go, hey, I want to fight against destroying this thing that you go in with your eyes wide open and go, no, that's the thing that's going to eat me up because God knows what he's talking about. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we can read a story a couple of thousand years old, more than that, and, uh, and really then come to the place where, wow, this is this is directly applicable to my life right now. And so, Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active and that, uh, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts us to the bone. And I pray, Lord, today that we, Lord, would hear your voice as you speak to us. Help us, Lord, to be able to see if there's anything in our lives that needs to be destroyed. If there's anything that we're unwilling to destroy, anything that we're holding back from you, Lord, reveal those things to us. And Lord, if there's anything in our life that we've been winking at, that that we call it good and that really you call it bad, Lord, would you help us to be able to see those things that really are bad in our lives so that we could kill them and destroy them. Lord, our desire is to know you and to love you and to honor you. And so, Father, we surrender our lives once and afresh to you. Listen, while we're in this attitude of prayer, I just want to give you the opportunity because maybe in your life there is those things that God's told you, hey, that's not good and I want you to destroy it and, and you're struggling with that right now. And, and if that's you, man, I just want to encourage you that you just need to lay that thing down. You just need to let go of that thing. And so we're here in an attitude of prayer and what I would encourage you to do and, and I want to tell you up front why I'm asking you to do this. The reason I'm asking you to do this is because I want you to begin to take action on that which God has convicted in your heart. 
See, it, you can be convicted and then you can go out these doors and you can get in your car and go about your day and you can never take action. And so we're here in this attitude of prayer and I would just like to encourage you, if God has spoken to your heart, I would ask you just to, just here in this, this is just between you and God. Every eye is closed and we're just focusing on the Lord. But if that's you and God has convicted you and said, you're calling something good that I call bad. You're hanging on to something that you won't utterly kill. I would ask you, raise your hand and say, Lord, that's me. You've spoken to me. I've heard your voice. Some of you, you're struggling to raise your hand because you're like, I don't know if I can kill that thing. That's why you need to raise your hand just to say, Lord, I've heard you help me to kill that thing. And so, Father, we just raise our hands just saying, would you please help us? to kill that which you've called bad, to kill that thing that you've asked us to kill, to kill that sin that's going to kill us. Thank you, Lord. You can put your hands down. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. And we just commit ourselves to you now, praying that you would help us, not just to be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit that we could walk out of these doors and put feet on our faith. And we pray it together in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.